Our sermon today will be taken from Philippians chapter 1, verse 18 to 26. This is the word of God. What then, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full coverage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Thus says the Lord. Thank you, Grace. All right, I'm gonna try this little mic thing and see how it works, because my uh, wireless, the wireless isn't working, but we'll see, we'll test it out. Let me just hold it. If I need it, I'll put it on there later. Welcome, guys. Uh, glad you guys are with us today. Uh, this week, we're gonna take a break from the Galatian series that we usually do. Uh, we've been doing the Galatian series where we study the whole book of Galatians from chapter one to chapter six, and we just read it in the context that it's in. I think that's been, it's blessed me a lot, and I hope it's blessed you in the same way that it has blessed me. Today, we're going to do a sermon from our Doctrine for the Heart series. That's another series we're doing where we take a particular passage in the Bible that talks about a particular doctrine, and we preach it, hopefully, in a way that tells us this doctrine is relevant to all of life. Now, usually, when we think of the word doctrine, we think of things like the Trinity, right, or the incarnation of Christ, who, who's God but became man. That's a doctrine. Or the doctrine of um, salvation, what does it mean to be justified and saved by faith and faith alone? But this week's topic, the doctrine is a little bit different. It's going to be taken from a bigger category that's usually called the doctrine for the Christian life. Okay? And the doctrine we're going to talk about of in that bigger category is the doctrine of joy. What the Bible says about joy. It's been a blessing for me to study this passage and hopefully um, um, we can learn a lot about what the Bible says about joy as it is revealed in the life and ministry of Paul in the book of Philippians. So today the sermon is going to be taken from the book of Philippians, which is another letter like the letter of Galatians that the Apostle Paul also wrote. But this time he's not writing it to a group of churches in Galatia. This time he's writing it to a group of churches in a region called Philippi. Yes, that's it. In a region called Philippi. Okay, Philippi. Uh, and this is a letter that Paul wrote from prison. It's interestingly an encouragement letter Paul wrote from prison to people outside of prison. When you think about it, it's usually the other way around, isn't it? People outside of prison write encouraging letters for people in prison. But Paul, in his joy, while he was in prison, wrote an encouraging letter to people outside of prison. I think there's a lot to learn about Paul and his joy um, uh, from this passage. 
one thing I want to say before uh, I go on about on the topic of joy, I want to say this is not an exhaustive sermon that talks about everything and all things that the Bible says about joy. It's not. It's just talking about joy specifically from this passage. We, we don't have time to talk about everything the Bible says about joy um, in, in, in 40 minutes. So this is specifically what the Bible says in regards to joy in the book of Philippians and in this passage. And I think there's a lot to learn about joy in the book of Philippians. The word joy or rejoice is mentioned 74 times in the New Testament. 27 of those times is in the book of Philippians. There is, uh, there is how many books in the New Testament? There are 27 books in the, in the New Testament, I think. And if you divide it all up, on average, you should only have um, each book talk about joy two or three times, right? If, if it talks about joy for 74 times, in the New Testament, and there's only and there's 27 books in the New Testament. You talk about joy, probably each book should talk about joy two or three times. But the book of Philippians talks about joy way more than two or three times. And I think it's a good book for us to learn joy from. Actually, I'm sorry. The Philippians doesn't talk about joy 27 times. It talks about joy 15 times. I'm bad with math. Remember last time I said that? Um, but but let's learn about, about this. Um, as we dig into a book that does emphasize highly on what does it mean to rejoice and to have joy. Okay. I want to point out three things from our passage today about joy. It's gained not by getting what we want, but by wanting the right thing. It's grown not by shortcuts, but by progressive obedience. It's motivated not to earn our salvation, but by an assurance of salvation. It's gained not by getting what we want, but by wanting the right thing. It's grown not by shortcuts, but by progressive obedience. It's motivated not to earn our salvation, but by an assurance of salvation. Let's, let's pray before we enter into our uh, passage today. Lord, what a joy um, it is to, to study your word and, and worship a God worth worshiping. At the same time, Father, we know that from Monday to Saturday, from Monday to Sunday, really, joy is often something that gets really slippery. It's hard to hold on to. It's hard to keep. It just keeps seem like slipping away, escaping us. There's so many reasons of why we don't have joy. And Lord, uh, help us navigate through how to live in this broken world as people who have been given, uh, given access to joy, the utmost joy, but also as a people still not yet in heaven, as people still living in a broken earth, in a broken world, with sin even in our own hearts that, uh, that, that takes away from us the source of true joy. Let us learn from this, from this word that you have given us and Lord, I pray and beg, uh, I, I, I beg you that you have mercy to us as we navigate in, in a pretty personal and complicated doctrine. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, point one. Joy is gained not by getting what we want, but by wanting the right thing. In Christian circles, generally, there are two spectrums that claim why we have a lack of joy. One, one spectrum I hear say a lot, the lack of joy is caused because we have too little. They would say, of course you're not joyful. You don't have that job you've been wanting. So pray harder to get that job because when you get that job, you'll have joy. Or of course you're not joyful. You don't have a spouse. You don't have a girlfriend or a boyfriend. Of course you're not joyful. And the reason why you don't have a spouse is because you just don't have enough faith. And for you to get joy, you have to have more faith so that that faith will give you a spouse or give you a girlfriend or a boyfriend that will give you joy, right? The thesis there is the lack of joy is caused because we don't have enough things. 
The other side of the spectrum is a camp that says this. You lack joy because you want too much. Your circumstances on earth, that should have no effect on your joy. You shouldn't care about a job or a spouse. Your joy is in Christ alone, right? That's like the other camp. You, you, those things, you, you shouldn't want anything. The reason why you don't have joy is because you want too much. That's kind of what they're saying. One says you don't have joy because you don't have enough things. The other says you don't have joy because you want too much. You want too many things. I think this passage may offer us another paradigm. We see Paul, a joyful man, not because he has a lot of things. He's in prison. Nor is it because he doesn't want anything. But it's because he wants the right thing. I know it's a bit vague, so let's, let's d dive deeper into it. Okay, first, let's look at Paul's circumstance. Um, let's look at Philippians chapter 1, verse 12. Early, the, same, the same book, but earlier in the chapter. should be on the screen. Where was he writing it from? We, we established from prison. Chapter 1, verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. He is currently in prison. Prison is not necessarily a place that comes to mind when thinking about joy, is it? But yet Paul says in verse 18, I what? I will rejoice. How can he have joy when he's living in a place and when he's in a situation where he's been stripped from all of his stuff, from all of his things, from all of his comforts? It doesn't really fit in with the first camp, does it? The first camp that said earlier, a lack of joy is caused because you don't have enough things. Paul was in prison. He didn't really have a lot of things, but yet he was still rejoicing. He didn't even know when he was going to be released. Look at verse 12, uh, I'm sorry, verse 20 in our, in our passage. He said, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. He has no possessions. His future is uncertain. And the possibility of death was lingering above his head yet he had joy so let's 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 put this first principle of joy on the shelf and keep it there first principle of joy joy can still exist without having many things the lack of stuff does not take away true joy joy can still exist without having many things the lack of stuff does not take away true joy but Paul's situation didn't fit into the second camp either the second camp that says you don't have joy because you just have too many wants. You want too much. Look at, um, uh, look at verse 21 to 23. He says, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Dying would be gaining. Dying would be better. The image of Paul here is not an emotionless person in prison with no wants, humming like a monk, right? Saying, oh, I don't want anything. I don't want anything. I'm, I'm truly content. That's not the image here. He contemplated death. He's saying to die would be better than this. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor to me. Yet, which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. To die is gain. Why? Because if he died, he won't be in prison anymore. He'll be with who? With Christ in heaven. He can finally escape the hardships of prison. It's not like he was immune to the hardships of prison. He didn't like it there. <laughs> I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. That's a lot better. That is far better than where I am right now. Better than what? Better than prison. 
Paul is saying, I don't like suffering. I don't like prison. I do still have wants that aren't met. I would rather depart from this earth and be face to face with Christ. I am honest about my suffering. I am honest about my pain. Paul is, Paul is saying that. Paul is honest about it. Now, side note, okay, before we move on. Paul was not advocating suicide here, okay? I want to be very careful. That's not what he's saying. Remember the context. He's not talking about considering taking his own life. He's saying because he's following Christ, he was imprisoned and threatened with dead, death. The Roman guards is the one threatening his life. And if following Christ leads him to death, it'll be gain anyways because he'll be with Christ, okay? So that, that's what he's saying, just, just to make clear there. So first principle, joy can still exist without having many things. The lack of stuff does not take away true joy. Second principle, joy can still exist alongside suffering. In other words, joy, true joy, can coexist with suffering. Not feeling suffering is not a prerequisite to feeling joy. Paul was suffering, but Paul still felt joy. The existence of pain does not take away true joy. Two principles, okay? Let me just repeat it again. First one, the lack of stuff doesn't take away joy. Second one, the lack of pain, or the, exis the existence of pain doesn't take away joy either. So what do we see here about Paul's joy? What about it? How can he have such a joy that even when he doesn't have everything he wants, he can still have joy? He's saying you can still be joyful even if your life isn't put together. Can we be joyful before we have that job that we want? Paul is saying, yes. Can I be joyful before I'm married? Paul is saying, yes. Can I be joyful married to this person? Paul is saying, yes, you can. Marriage isn't easy, right, guys? So there's hardships in marriage. There's hardships in singleness. Paul is saying you can, be, you can have joy in all those situations, first one. Second one. We saw that Paul's joy coexisted with his suffering. He didn't enjoy prison. He said death would be better. But at the same time, he said, I will rejoice. So apparently, his joy, number two, can coexist with suffering. He did not feel the need to choose between feeling one or the other. He did not feel the pressure of choosing joy or pain. He said, yes and yes. I felt joy, and I'm feeling pain. I'd rather die. It's a lot of pain if you want to die. Paul was honest about his pain. Yes, his joy coexisted um, with his suffering, but in a sense, we'll see how his joy somehow does overshadow his, his suffering. But nonetheless, he felt the permission to feel one without minimizing the other. You can feel joy and suffering at the same time. So let's, let's move on. What, what kind of joy is this? Where did Paul get it from? How was it still there when everything he had was taken away from him? And when he was in the midst of true, real, felt, unavoided, unsuppressed suffering, how was he still joyful? What was it? What did he want? What was the source of his joy that the world couldn't touch and that he can still experience in the midst of suffering? He tells us in verse 20, it is my eager expectation. This is what I want the most that I still have. This is what I want the most that can't be taken away from me. Verse 20, as it is my eager, my want, my desire, what I'm excited about, what I'm obsessed about, this is what I want, middle of verse 20, to honor Christ. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, 
but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul was joyful in the midst of all this, not because he had a lot of things, not because he didn't have any wants, not because he wasn't feeling any pain. He was joyful in the midst of all of this because he wanted the right thing. He wanted to honor Christ. This all-consuming passion, this life dream of Paul, this one wish, this is what he wants. This is what he's eager for. He still had the very thing he wanted the most. What was that thing? To honor Christ with his life. A thing that no one could take away, not even death. See, you want to take away Paul's joy? You can't do it by putting him in prison. You can't do it by taking away his stuff. You can't do it by threatening his future security. You can't do it by taking away his comforts. You can't even do it by taking away his life. If you want to take away Paul's joy, take away his ability to honor Christ. Then you'll see a sad Paul. But until you're, you're able to do that, until you're able to take away his ability to honor Christ, he will rejoice. He was joyful, not because he had a lot of things. He was joyful, not because he wasn't feeling any pain. He was joyful because he wanted the right thing. An ability, Paul says, a thing that no one can take away from him. Let's, let's, let's prove this from the scriptures. Look at the beginning of verse 18. Why was he rejoicing? What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. That's why I'm happy, because Christ is being proclaimed. Christ is being honored. Verse 12, we read earlier. What does it say Paul was doing in his imprisonment? I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. He was preaching the gospel in prison to the prison guards who was putting him captive. And he's happy because of that. It sucks being in here, yes, but I get to preach the gospel so I can be joyful as well. They can take away his bank account. They can take away his freedom. They can take away his schedule. They can take away his comfort. They can take away his future plans, even his life. But until they're able to take his ability to worship and honor and preach the gospel and, 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 and honor Christ, you will not find a Paul that is desolate. Sad, yes. Suffering, yes. Experiencing pain, yes. But never desolate. There will still be joy that exists because he wanted the right thing. By the way, you take one of those things from me, I'm done. <laughs> you take my bank account, my schedule, my, my comfort, my future plans, you take that away from me, I'm gone because I just don't love Christ the same way Paul does. Okay. See, Paul's analogy here, or, or analogy to, to describe what Paul is feeling or Paul's joy, is not like an earthly prosperous man who has a lot of stuff that makes him happy. Nor is it like a monk who doesn't want anything, who doesn't desire anything, who wasn't eager about anything. Okay? But it's more like a marathon runner. Have you run a marathon? I haven't. I just didn't know. I, I don't want to see who made me feel bad here. I have never run a marathon. But I imagine if you run a marathon and somebody asks you in the middle of the, oh, or imagine a really committed marathon runner who, 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 whose single desire, his single want, his single eagerness, his single longing is to finish the race. That's, that's all he wants. That's what makes him happy. Imagine this guy being interviewed in the middle of the race somehow. And the interviewer says, are you in pain? Absolutely. Do you have access to anything to comfort you right now? Not really. Are you suffering? Absolutely. Are you tired? Are you beat down? Are you hurting? Yes, yes, yes. So why are you still in this race? 
Does it give you joy? Yes. Wait, wait, wait. You don't have many things, but you're joyful. Yes. You're suffering right now, but at the same time, you're suffering and you're joyful. Yes. How? What, how is that possible? I'm happy because even though I don't have access to many things, and even though every bone in my body is in sheer agony, I'm getting closer and closer to the thing that I want. So I don't have to choose between pain and suffering. I can feel both at the same time. I don't need a lot of things to make me happy because what I want is to finish the race. Paul was joyful because he wanted the right thing. If what we truly want, if our heart's desire is to honor Christ above all things, we will have joy that exists even when we don't have many earthly things. We'll have joy that can coexist with suffering. Now, before I move on to the second point, let me say what might be one of the most oversimplified, frustrating, idealistic statements that I can probably ever say. If honoring Christ is truly the supreme desire of your heart, it is a desire that you can fulfill at any time. If honoring Christ is truly the supreme desire of your heart, you will have access to a joy that this world can't touch. So, want Christ more than anything else. Amen. Let's go. That's frustrating, right? It is. It's so idealistic. It's so, I don't know. I, don't even, I can't imagine my life that wants Christ that much. And we feel that um, because right now all I'm doing is giving us a snapshot of the finish line. That, that's all I'm doing. Okay, I'm not saying you need to be like that right now. We need to be like that right now. We're all in progress there. Right now all I'm saying, let's, let's take the marathon analogy here. Um, all I'm saying is that I'm giving you a picture of what the finish line looks like. And the finish line is to be the kind of person that wants to honor Christ above everything else. If you get there, you'll have a, this kind of joy. That's the finish line, okay? But I don't want to oversimplify. I don't want to sound like I'm minimizing the complications, the hardships of what it takes to get there, all right? So, so let's go on to, that, to our second point. How can we get to this finish line? How can we have this kind of joy that is caused by being the kind of person that wants the right thing, that wants to honor Christ above all else? Point two, it is grown not by shortcuts, but by progressive obedience. Most of us here find it hard to relate to Paul, whose desire is to honor Christ, whose all-consuming want, what gives him joy in the midst of a horrible situation, is to honor Christ. I want to be like that. I often trick myself to thinking that I am that, right? Maybe after writing a sermon, I, I, I leave my desk and I'm like, yeah. That, that one statement you said about, about love and patience, that was, that was a good sentence, Tez. And then 2 a.m. comes around when my daughter wakes up, and trust me, my life is nowhere near what I just wrote about love and patience. Right? We often fool ourselves. We think that we're there, but really, really we're not. Really, I mean, I don't know all of you, so some of you might be, but I do know a lot of you, and we're not there. <laughs> we're not there. I'm not there. Let's just be honest about that. Okay? It's, it's a progress. We're moving towards a finish line. And if this is you, then, then welcome. You're, you're among many people who are on the same boat. Don't condemn yourself just because you're not there. The church in Philippi wasn't there either. Look at verses 24 to 25. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. For them, it's still a progress. And by the way, the church in Philippi was a relatively healthy church. 
compared to the church we read in Galatians, who is struggling with legalism and all these kinds of things, and then another church in Corinth who is struggling with a lot of immorality and, and a lot of sin. The church in Philippi was actually a pretty good church. Paul was just writing an encouraging letter to continue on. You're doing well, but you're not there yet. Move forward. Continue to move to this finish line, to becoming the kind of person that wants to honor Christ above all else, for this is where joy is found. So, all right, let's get a bit practical. What does this progress look like? What are the things we can do to become the kind of person who wants the right thing so that we can get a joy that the world can't touch and can still coexist with suffering at the same time? Okay, let's, let's take some principles taken from uh, this passage and the book of Philippians as a whole. All right. How could we cultivate our hearts of becoming this kind of person? Again, this is an exhaustive sermon about everything in regards to joy in the whole Bible. It's just from this book and from this passage. Okay, so let's, si- let's see what this book and passage says. Let's look at what the Philippians had in place. What Paul is assuming the Philippians had in their progress towards joy. Who was he addressing? Let's read the opening of this book. Chapter 1, verse 1. Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. Assuming that they're Christian. These are the people who have received Christ Jesus our Lord and Savior. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. With the overseers, another word for elders, and the deacons overseers and deacons. Paul is assuming there's a local church structure in place. Paul is assuming these Christians are under elders and deacons, that these Christians are members. They're involved in a local church. That's Paul's assumption in this whole letter. This is who he's writing it to. Okay? So Paul is saying to continue in our progress of having joy in the faith, to becoming this kind of person that wants Christ more than anything else, assumes it's being done under the context of a local church. That's who he's addressing, under elders and deacons, okay? Um, Let's look at Acts chapter 14.3. We see that Paul, every time he plants a church, he always appoints elders. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord. Elders, the existence of elders means the existence of an organized local church. Okay, so what kind of church is this? Philippians 1, verses 4 to 5. Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So the progress towards becoming this kind of person is done under the context of a local church that, one, is in mission together. Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. They're sharing the gospel for others with each other. Okay, a local church in mission. Two, they pray together. Look at verse 19 of our passage. For I know that through your prayers. Local church that is in mission together, that is praying together. Three, they submitted to the apostolic teaching. That's a little complicated one, but let's, let's break it down. They accepted Paul's teaching. Paul is an apostle, right? They accepted apostolic preaching, which is another way to say they accepted the Bible. The teaching of the apostles is is the Bible, right? Matthew, Mark, James, Paul, John, those are apostles. So when you you accept the teaching of the apostles, you're accepting the New Testament. When you accept the teaching of the prophets, you're accepting the Old Testament, the prophets and the apostles. They accepted Paul. Where do we see them accepting Paul? Verse 24 to 26. Uh, The apostle Paul said, I want to come see you again to help you progress in your joy. And verse 26 at the end it says, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus. Paul is saying, when I come to you, you're going to accept me. 
you accept my apostolic teaching, you accept the New Testament, you accept the Bible. Okay? That's a good thing. We see this church as a church that is on mission with each other. We see this church as a church that is praying with each other. We see this church as a church that is under the Bible together. They're under biblical teaching together. Okay. For them, then, and for us today, if we want to become the kind of person that has this kind of joy, if we want to become this kind of person that wants Christ above all else, we do it under the context of a local church by praying together, sharing the gospel together, studying the Bible together in a gospel community. Now, there's a lot to say about joy in regards to counseling. There's a lot to say about joy in regards to psychology. There's a lot to say about joy in regards to medicine. I don't have much time to get into that right now, but just know I, the fact that I'm not mentioning it is because I d it's not that I don't value it. I do. I think there's a lot of things that can come out of counseling and psychology and, and even, even medicine sometimes with clinically depressed um, 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 brains, minds. But for now, let's not get there. For now, let's just talk about joy as in revealed here. True biblical truth highlighted in this text and in this book. To get joy is to become the kind of person that wants the right thing. To become the kind of person that wants the right thing, be plugged in in a local church and do the spiritual disciplines with them. It is done by long-term faithful obedience under the context of church. See, this, this sheds a, few a new different kind of light to church government, doesn't it, and spiritual disciplines. Usually when we think about spiritual disciplines, reading the Bible, praying, sharing my faith, we think about church structure, deacons and elders. It seems so dry. It seems like it's so irrelevant. Paul here is saying, you better care about those things. They directly affect your joy. They directly affect your growth to become the kind of person who is entranced with honoring Christ above all else. Okay, I think I might have said this before, but I think it's worth saying again. The reason why I just said this, and even when I saw this in the passage, I didn't get too excited. You know why? Because we all live in a culture of awesome. Right? Everything's going to be awesome. Everything's going to be big. Everything has to be fast. Everything has to be instant. Everything has to have shortcuts. Everything has to be glamorous. And we want, we expect, an, we expect like a one-word answer that's just like mind-blowing, and then we leave this room and we're like, I know the secret big whatever to joy. And Paul is saying, that's, that's not the means of how you get joy. It's not through that. Okay? The virtue of long, consistent, often slow-progressing faithful obedience is so undervalued. But this is how we spiritually grow. This is how we grow in joy. We instead often tempted to look for the quick results. Revival here, revival there. Some even claiming shortcuts through special revelations that has nothing to do with the Bible. Memorize this one verse, you'll forget all your problems. Pray this one prayer, you'll miraculously receive joy. Fast for this long, you'll get that thing you want that will give you joy. Buy this oil, you'll receive the blessings that will bring you joy. This quick, instant method of getting joy is the same method that the world promotes. Get drunk on this, you'll forget all your problems. Get married, you will miraculously receive everlasting joy. <laughs> I love my wife, she loves me, but marriage, <laughs> it's just not true. Amen. <laughs> Amen, sister. <laughs> Achieve this one goal in life. It'll, it'll, it'll be your prerequisite to joy. You'll, you'll have joy after you do that. Buy this one thing, it'll give you quick joy. That's the way of the world. 
just because it's masked by biblical verses doesn't make it more spiritual. This is not the way the nor- this is not the norm the Bible reveals we are to get joy. Joy is gained through slow, long, painstaking, faithful obedience to the Lord. Slowly we are sanctified. We're becoming more like Christ. Become the kind of person who loves him above all else. Let me let me read what John Calvin says uh, in relation to Philippians and um, and this this doctrine of joy. This is what John Calvin says, one of the famous reformers that anyways. John Calvin says Paul explains what spiritual progress will look like. Christian maturity does not come through special mystical insights available to only a few, but rather through the patient practice of the familiar virtues of love and service to others. We're not there yet. We have a snapshot of the end goal. It takes hard, long work to get there. Let's recap before we get on to the last point. Okay, to become this kind of person that has joy even with little material possession, to have this kind of person, to become this kind of person that has joy even while we're feeling pain at the same time, to become this kind of person that loves Christ so much that difficult situations can't take it away from you, takes long progressive obedience. First one, it cannot be taken, uh, uh, it can't, your lack of possessions can't take it away from you. Second one, even difficult situations can't take it away from you. Actually, just a thought, difficult situations give you more opportunity to honor Christ, doesn't it? When is Christ honored most in marriage? Is it when the couple is feeling no pain? Is it when the couple is feeling no suffering? Sure, yeah. But Christ is honored in marriage when the couple stick with each other. When they say, I will love you like Christ loved the church. And I'm feeling a lot of pain right now. I'm suffering right now. But I will honor Christ, and I love you, and I will honor you. And be joyful in that. Because your, your ability to honor Christ is being fulfilled even in the midst of suffering. When is Christ honored best at workplace? It's when we do our jobs excellently, yes, but probably more so when we painstakingly stick to our integrity even when it causes us disadvantage. If we just want to honor Christ more, pain can't take it away from us. Sometimes it actually helps us do it. So, if we want the right thing, we will honor Christ. We have a joy that little material possession won't take away and a joy that even difficult situations won't stop us from having. Actually, sometimes it'll give us more opportunity to do it. Now, if you're not there yet, welcome to the club. It's a progress and all a one that we can all move forward in. So, we've talked about the source of joy, a heart that wants the right thing. We've talked about the growth of joy, long-term obedience under the context of a local church. But we haven't talked about the most important thing. Without this, all of our long-term obedience would be a waste. Without this, all of our long-term obedience will never result in a heart that honors Christ over all things. Let's, let's end here at a third point. Point number three. It's motivated not to earn our salvation, but by an assurance of salvation. There's a well-known story by a well-known pastor that I might have already shared here once, but let's share it again. I think it's appropriate. He made up a story of Jesus, the disciples, and a rock. He said one day, this is a made-up story, it's not in the Bible. One day Jesus is walking with his disciples, and then Jesus told him, I want you guys to pick up a rock. And all the disciples picked up a rock, and this pastor picked on Peter because everybody picks on Peter. Uh, but Peter picked up the smallest rock. He's like, I'm not, I want to follow you, but I'm not going to 
I'm not going to obey you that much. So he picked up the smallest rock and he walked with it. And then at lunchtime, Jesus said, okay, put down your rocks, and I'm going to turn your rocks into food. And however big your rock is is how big your meal is. And Peter's like, what? I have this tiny little rock, you know, and all I get is like, I don't know, whatever, you know, like a really small bite of a sandwich. That's all I get. And Peter gets really upset. And Jesus says, okay, we're going to continue our journey. I want you to pick up another rock. And they pick up rocks. And this time, Peter's like, I'm not getting fooled this time, right? I'm going to pick up a big rock. I'm going I'm to say so he finds a boulder, and he picks this boulder up, and he carries it, and he's tired. But in his, in his heart, he's like, I'm going to eat a buffet when he turns this into a buffet. And he's walking it. And then at the end of the journey, Jesus says, okay, I want you now to throw your rocks down into that river. And Peter's like, wait. I thought this was my buffet. I, I, thought, you're, I thought I was going to eat all this. And Jesus like, no. And he got really mad. He's like, I picked this rock up for you, um, um, and you turned it into food, and I didn't have much. I picked this rock up for you, and then you didn't give me food. And Jesus was like, Peter, who did you pick that rock up for? Why did you obey me? Was it for you, or was it for me? Why, why did you pick up that rock? And, and, and the moral of the story is seeing that Peter was obedient to Jesus, not because he loved Jesus, not because he wanted to honor Christ, but because he wanted to have a motive. He, he wanted to earn something for himself. If our motivation for a long-term faithful obedience under the context of a local church is done for a need to earn something for ourselves, it will never grow our hearts to honor Christ more. See, there is one thing Christians are often uncertain of. There is one thing that Christians think that they still need to earn. And they often obey God in order to earn it. This one thing, this one doubt, is an assurance of salvation. Paul's obedience was done under the assumption that he was saved. And nothing can take his salvation from him. Look at verse 21 with me one more time. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Why do you think it was gain for Paul to die? Because when he dies, he is absolutely 100%, without a shadow of a doubt, assured and certain that he will be in heaven with Christ. His salvation was assured. How do we know that? Verse 24. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Paul had an assurance of salvation. Now think about it. Unless Paul's salvation was pre-guaranteed before his long-term obedience, unless our salvation is pre-guaranteed before our long-term faithful obedience... Like Peter in the story above, there will always be a selfish reason behind our obedience. You see, what is that? It's to earn salvation. I'm obeying you, God, so I can earn my own salvation. That's not going to result in a heart that is grown to honor Christ. So the big question is, how can we have an assurance of salvation prior to our obedience, before we're obedient? Look at uh, Philippians chapter 3, verse 9. Let's, let's flip forward a few, a few chapters. Chapter 3, verse 9. And being found in him, Paul says, this is Paul's source of assurance of salvation. This is how Paul knows he's saved. And being found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Why was Paul so certain? Why does Paul have this assurance in which it would lead his obedience as a means to honor Christ, not to earn something for himself? Because he says... Christ has died for me, and my salvation is guaranteed and not dependent anymore on my long-term faithful obedience to the law. But it's on faith in Christ. He's been purchased by Christ on the cross. He's now obedient. We can now, in Christ, 
pursue long-term obedience not as a bargain to earn salvation from Christ. It's already been given to him by him on the cross. We can do it simply to honor him who died for us. Paul's obedience resulted in, an, in a Christ-honoring heart because it was motivated not by a self-advancing heart, by a self-earning heart, but by Christ. This is how obedience will lead him, leads him and will lead us to becoming the kind of person we saw in this snapshot. This is how Christ will grow in our hearts. So let me end with this one question. You know the kind of joy we talked about, a joy that's not affected by material possession and a joy that's not affected uh, by the existence of pain. I think that was a joy felt by Jesus. Was Jesus joyful on the cross? Look at Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. I think Jesus was joyful on the cross. Did he have any earthly possessions on the cross? No. Did he experience pain on the cross? Absolutely. Was he joyful on the cross? Yes. Hebrews 12, verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Why was Jesus joyful, even when he had no earthly possessions? Why was he joyful, even in the midst of suffering? Because there's something he wanted. There's something he longed for. There's something he desired. There's something that made him very joyful. And he would pursue it, even if it meant that he had to give up everything. Pursue it, even if he had to suffer. What was it? What was this joy set before him on the cross? Let's read one last passage. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 8 and 10. This is why Jesus had joy even in the midst of suffering. Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of, de because of, the suffering of death, so that by, grace, by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory. The joy set before Christ that made him persevere through suffering is so that he can bring many sons to glory, so that he can save those who would trust him. The source of Jesus' joy, the reason why he was so happy on the cross, is because his pain and suffering brought him closer to you. Who is his joy? What made him persevere through suffering? What did he want so badly he was willing to die for? You. The sons that are being brought to glory. You see, the object of joy set before Jesus on the cross, the thing that, wanted, that he wanted so bad, that was so valuable that the king of the universe was willing to die on the cross for, was those who trust in him. You and I, who put our faith in Christ that all of his sons through the cross will be brought to glory. Imagine asking Jesus on the cross, are you in pain? Absolutely. Do you have access to anything that could comfort you right now? Not really. Are you suffering, Jesus? Absolutely. Are you tired? Are you beat down? Are you hurting? Yes, yes, yes. So why are you still doing this? Why, why does this give you joy? Does it give you joy? Yes. You don't have many things, but you're joyful. Yes. You're suffering at the same time while you're also experiencing joy. Yes. How? Why? Because even though I don't have access to many things, and even though every bone in my body is in sheer agony, I'm getting closer and closer to my heart's desire, and that is you. He would rather die on the cross than not spend eternity with you. 
He was joyful in the midst of suffering as long as he could be brought closer to you. He was, he was joyful not because he had many things, not because he didn't experience any suffering, but because he wanted, thankfully, us. So shall we find joy, even when we don't have many things, even in the midst of suffering, if we could just want him as much as he wants us, if we could just want the right thing. The source of joy is by having a heart that wants to honor Christ above all things. We can cultivate this kind of heart by faithful long-term obedience. And our long-term obedience will only be Christ-honoring if our salvation has first and foremost been guaranteed by him on the cross. So I pray that we as a local church will encourage each other to progress towards this joy. That we may continue and become a people who wants the right thing. The thing that this earth has no authority over. So let's, let's hear Paul's words one more time before we end. Look at Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 to 9. And then we'll end in prayer. This is what Paul says in prison. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Let's pray. Father, why it is that you made us the object of your joy to a point where you would die on a cross for us is unthinkable to us. I don't know why. I don't really see anything in me that would make you want to do that. But Lord, am I so thankful and joyful the fact that you did die for me on the cross the fact that you did love us um, um, and and persevere through pain for us father give us give us the mercy and grace to want you as badly as you wanted us give us the mercy and grace to want the right thing that it will lead you down the same path as you went through that it will give us joy even when we don't have anything because all we want is to honor christ it'll, it'll give us joy even when we experience pain at the same time, because even in the messiness and the pains and the sufferings of this world, the ability to honor Christ isn't really affected by that. We can still do it, Father. And, and the thing is, we just don't want you that much. We just don't want the right thing that much. And Lord, as we progress through this, through a long, painstaking obedience, give us mercy and grace and remind us of your gospel over and over and over again that you loved us so much you would rather die on a cross than not be with us. Thank you that we have become your joy. Thank you that in that we can have joy in honoring you back and thus in this relationship honoring God and portraying to the world the God that we worship. Thank you for who you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.